Welcome to the conversation. I'm Maitha Alhassan, and today I'm so hyped. First, we have Marjan Carlos, who is a journalist, editor, public speaker, and host of Your Favorite Auntie. Her work sits at the intersection of fashion, beauty, and politics. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this because some people are kind of sensitive about timelines. But for over a decade now, we were master's students at Columbia, and we saw that our interests aligned, and we thought really deeply about the world of beauty from a political lens. So today we have you on. This might sound a little superficial, but we're going to go deep. Um, we're going to talk about WAP. Absolutely. WAP. Absolutely. So before, we, before we do that, and so I'm so glad that I get to introduce you, I want folks to get a snapshot of your work. So you recently wrote the cover story for the L issue that just came out this month, which was an interview with rapper and, as you say, polymath Cardi B. And so I want to throw to some quotes in your piece that I thought were just so incisive. As you say, the polymathic force, former stripper, one-time reality star, raptress, wife, mother, um, wife, mother, converted the, the salon into a backdrop for an earnest conversation around the most urgent issues facing Americans today, job creation, police brutality, a livable minimum wage and workers' rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. this, the scene was full of obvious asymmetry. Cardi's glamour puss persona played irreverently off of Sanders's mensch, <laughs> but in so many ways, it was just two New Yorkers talking about the issues of the day with all the camaraderie of the politicking found at the Dominican bodega that dots Cardi's native South Bronx neighborhood. And here you're talking about the Sanders interview a couple months ago, actually, maybe even a year ago. It was a full year. Cardi B. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a full mm -hmm. year. So you open up this piece talking about how she is an unlikely political commentator that has the ears of so many and is ahead of her time in so many ways. So let's take a look at a clip from that interview and I want to get your commentary on it. Certain people like to brag that there is more jobs now in America, but it's like, yeah, there's an increase of jobs given, but what are they paying in these jobs? They're practically paying nothing. You got it. That is exactly the issue. So you can get a job, but maybe you're going to have to work with two or three jobs. Exactly. Legislation that I've introduced, which was passed in the House recently, the U.S. House, would raise that minimum wage to $15. An so prescient. Ahead of her Beyond. time. Ahead of her time. She was, she was talking about these types of issues well before the election cycle was beginning i mean obviously it was it was she was working with a potential uh, candidate bernie sanders but i think that she was talking about um real issues that we are talking about today and trying to figure out how we're going to resolve um and i think people really discredited her and they underestimated her influence and her power and her intellect um she's not a Diane Sawyer, but isn't she like at the same time, because she's able to speak very, uh, very saliently to politics. She's able to touch and reach millions of people in ways that perhaps even Diane Sawyer can't. 
you know, and, and some of the biggest pol- political commentators um, in the game. So I was really drawn at, into her, her politics and the way that she expresses herself um, and definitely in the way that people underestimate her. I think that's a very important yeah. part of it. Yeah, I want to throw to some, another quote from your piece that um, where you sum it all up that Cardi's advocacy for progressive social policies like social security and other public safety nets often puts her in a league of her own. And I know this might be provocative to say, but if she wasn't 27 years old, I always said she would be a massive challenger to Trump. She's, she's yeah. a reality star. She knows the issues that are on the minds and hearts of yeah. folks. And yeah. she also knows how to center the conversation about the things that she wants to talk about. No, absolutely. She's, she is a populist artist, and which I stress that in the, in the piece. And so she's a woman of the people. And the reason why she became so popular uh, was not just her music, but was the fact that she was so accessible. She, she really gave herself over to her fans. And she was very honest and, and, and very forthright. And she didn't really try to put on a facade. And I think that cult of personality is what people dr- are really drawn into by her and that authenticity. Um, and so if she did run for office, I don't think that it would be so far-fetched to say that she could give Trump a run for his money because Trump also kind of stands in that same ideal, that framework, which is that he can galvanize a particular constituency and they're drawn into his beliefs and his and the way that he thinks. Obviously, Cardi is much more evolved and she's much more of a, um, a, a leader of, 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 of people and she's, and she's definitely someone who's trying to work for the better of people, but then, then Trump, but I, I am really drawn <laughs> to this idea of them both kind of being populist, um, uh, figures. And that's what have, that's what accounts for a lot of their fame and a lot of their success. So it's, it's an yeah. interesting parallel, but it's, yeah. It's also aligned with why her and Bernie so early on uncle Bernie, she saw some sort of resonance with because yeah. not only were they calling for this public safety net, but she was also, as you continue to say, really advanced in her political analysis. She's talking about a tax receipt. Like, why don't we have our tax broken down so we know where our money is going? And then the the other part of it is that she, um, as you said, is really accessible to folks. And then something else, which is, Maybe not so surprising to people, but she has become a black feminist icon. And I want to talk mm-hmm. about that and the power of WAP. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. we can't cuss here. So if you know what that means, please go look that up. Google. Uh, <laughs> Google is your friend, but it's the inverse of BDE. And if you don't know that either, <laughs> do look that up. But, so tell us about WAP politics and what did she usher in? I think that she ushered in um, an unapologetic ownership of female sexual sexuality and female sexual agency. And I think that's what scares a lot of uh, dissenters and, and a lot of predominantly those dissenters are men. Um, I think that she's a woman who, you know, the song is comes from a, a long line of female rappers putting it out there and, and really declaring what they want sexually, just like their male rapper counterparts have. So it's not like this is such a far-fetched 
song. Like, oh my gosh. I mean, we have a, you know, Dina Howard freak like me, um, Kia, you know, my neck, my back. Um, I mean, you, little Kim's musicology period. Like we know that like female rappers before her have been forthright about their sexuality. But I think that this dynamic duo really, um, it's really, really bold and very straightforward. And it really tells women to declare openly what they want in bed. And that in and of itself can scare everybody. And it's become the talk of, you know, the world, basically. I mean, it's, it's gone international. It's number one hit. Um, and it's, it's generated a lot of money already. And I think that's, I think that has a lot to do with the, the, it scares men to see women so totally in control of their sexuality. But there is a persistence of a double standard here. We have Meg Thee Stallion who's in the video and the community responses are pretty hotly divided around if you could explain what happened to her and how people reacted to Meg Thee Thee Stallion and the violence that was imposed on her. So Meg Thee Stallion, I think right after she had shot this, the, the video for WAP, um, was in an altercation um, with a rapper named Tori Lanes, who they had a, some type of romantic dalliance. Um, and he, they had a fight and he shot her in the foot twice when she was getting out of her car. And she tried to hide those details and try to save his, his behind and hers. And she didn't really uh, want to go to the police with these types of details, but obviously became a huge issue. And and people were like, who actually shot you? Did you actually get hurt? You know, people were really doubting her story. Um, they were like, Tory Lanez is, would never do something like this. And, you know, Megan really had to go on an Instagram live last week and really just declare the fact that this is what happened. This is, you know, this man attacked me and assaulted me and you guys made fun of me and you made fun of my violence, the violence that was committed against me. Um, And, you know, where are black men, where are men supporting women and, and specifically black women, you know? And so that was really like, what fell out of that. And it was so interesting to see the one, this woman who is a part of the biggest song in the world, which is all about sexual agency, which is all about domination, female empowerment. And you can see that it, men are not able to receive that. And, and that yes. is kind of where the conflict rises, right? You know? Well, I just want to add that for a lot of abolitionists, there is a, um, uh, there's a, desire uh, to not go to the police for a reason because we know what happens especially to black folks when you call the police so she that's the reason why she held off on doing it she did reveal his name but i think what you're saying is so fascinating that there is an icon and there's how do i say an economizing of her at the Mm -hmm. same time that she still Mm -hmm. remains so vulnerable and i think that's a big takeaway that we can have when it comes to the power of black women, but mm-hmm. also making sure we know that socially they're still not protected. Exactly. It's, you know, you can have the number one song in the world. You can entertain the entire world during a pandemic. Savage Remix was the number one song in the world during the quarantine. But when you need people's support the most, they go silent. It's as if black women are only good for entertainment and, 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 um, you know, looking good. And when we voice our concerns, when we voice violence, we're not heard. 
and we're silenced. And, you know, ultimately that, that really is crushing. Um, and I think it needs to be discussed more, that, that dichotomy. And if folks want to continue listening to you, to other Black women, or continue the discussion, please do check out Marjan Carlos, your favorite auntie on her <laughs> IG. Please share your information for folks so they know where to find you. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Marjan underscore Carlos and at your favorite auntie show. Check us out every Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have IG Live and, you know, it's an advice show and I'm just giving all the advice that I can to the people <laughs> during these times. Thank you for doing that. We're going to have to have you on again. Thanks. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you for this. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Maitha Alhassan. Joining us now is Monifa Bendele. And she is the Senior Vice President of Moms Rising, is a Movement for Black Lives leader who sits on the steering committee for Communities United for Police Reform. And you even launched two successful court cases against police misconduct, which I hope we can get into because we frequently talk about struggles and not enough about victories. So she's had decades of experience working for and towards Black liberation. We're really lucky to have you here. Before we begin, because I know we're going to talk about the Black National Convention, which is happening in a couple of days, the reason for Black August, which is happening now, I want to start up top with the latest on Jacob Blake and also get your response, who is a 29-year-old man, father, who was shot in the back seven times in front of his children by the Kenosha Police Department. And I believe latest word we received is that he survived, but he is likely paralyzed. I want to get your response to this, especially as somebody who has worked with the Malcolm X Grassroots Project that came out with the report that revealed almost every 28 hours a Black person is killed through state-sanctioned violence, whether that be police brutality or vigilante violence. So I, I would love to hear your response. Monifa. Yeah, chills. You know, I think it's just a sad illustration, a painful, horrific illustration of how real that every 20, 28 hours report was. When we first released that report down seven years ago, people didn't believe us. You know, people pushed back. They were like, no way, this can't be right. And now through social media and through video footage that can go viral instantly, people are able to see that not only are we inundated daily with police violence against black men, women, and children, but even during one of the biggest racial justice reckoning of our lifetime, right, of me and you, you know, this past June, there were demonstrations against police murder in all 50 states on the same day of Juneteenth. And even with all that attention, all of the discussion that's going on right now around police killings of black men, women, and children, that this would happen in broad daylight. The police shot Jacob in front of dozens of people, in front of his children, in front of people, you know, videotaping. And it just goes to show that the culture, the culture that is ingrained in policing um, across the country is so entrenched that this is, it's not just about awareness. Awareness is not going to change this. We need to completely overhaul the system. Yeah, the 
the work of overhauling the system and changing culture. I, I really want to pin down on what you were talking about with that, because as we know, most of the political movements that we've been a part of or studying require a cultural shift and change. So I want you to talk to us about Black August, which has become such a cultural point um, in the year, especially around Black liberation, but it is deeply rooted in political demands. Yeah, one of the things that is um, painfully clear to us is that there are many things that our parents fought for in the 60s and 70s that we still have to struggle to tear down. And Black August is a tradition that grew out of the 70s. It grew out of celebrating activists who fought in the California prison system for basic human rights. They were fighting against police violence. They were fighting against police murder, specifically the murder of one of their leaders in, in the prison system, George Jackson, um, Katari Golden, um, Jonathan Jackson by the state. And so throughout the prison system, people say, you know what we need? Not another Black History Month. Black August is not another Black History Month, but we need a time to reflect and study specifically on Black liberation movements. We need to study and uplift freedom fighters specifically and to take time to study their movements, to recharge ourselves and to continue to the committed fight. And so now there's been a rebirth of Black August, you know. Mm. Now, almost 50 years later, George Jackson was killed in 1971. You see people all over the country studying George Jackson, practicing Black August, doing celebrations and doing demonstrations, doing everything they can to continue the fight. Yeah, can you briefly explain who George Jackson is? There might be some folks watching that don't know about the profound impact he's had on the Black liberation movement. So we think of mass incarceration as starting in 1994 with the crime bill, but actually mass incarceration is a continuation of the chattel slavery system. And George Jackson was a young man, a teenager actually, who was sentenced for one year to life for robbing a gas station of 70 bucks. So if you can imagine that you have a life sentence on the end for a robbery of $70. And he politicized himself. He studied in prison. He understood what many of us have learned out of the book, The New Jim Crow. George Jackson was talking about that from behind the walls. He authored books. Um, people may have seen Blood in My Eye, Soledad Brothers. And he organized men and women throughout the prison system to demand to be treated like human beings. And that's one of the reasons why he was targeted um, by prison guards and he was killed in August of 1971. People also famously know him through his comrade, Angela Davis, who is really the yeah. godfather of the modern um, abolition movement, um, prison abolition movement today. Um, she was actually on trial, um, allegedly for supplying Jonathan Jackson, his brother, with weapons, who was killed the year before, trying to get his brother out of prison because he saw it as a kidnapping. You know, what teenager gets life in prison for a $70 um, robbery. And the injustices, as you had mentioned, continue, although we are demonstrating in larger numbers than I'm sure a lot of us have seen before. Um, what other things um, are going to be, so as we spoke about in the beginning, the prison industrial complex that's led to the prison abolition movement that's connected to the calls for defund the police, what other things are happening at the Black National Convention, which 
is going to be taking place in a couple of days, as we said. And where did the Black National Convention come from? Yeah, so six years ago, out of the Ferguson uprisings gave birth to the movement for Black Lives. And six years later, 150 Black-led organizations from all over the country are part of the movement for Black Lives and have been pushing the vision for Black Lives since the time of Ferguson. We've been saying that we need to defund the police, that we need to invest in real community safety, invest in community infrastructure, invest in health, and that that's the only way that we're gonna stop seeing the police violence, the state-sanctioned violence that's killing us every 28 hours still. And so at the Black National Convention, you're gonna see a recommitment to that vision for Black Lives through our platform, our 2020 Black Agenda. Um, you're going to hear from state delegations from all over the country, just like you'd see at the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention, except that these will be activists who were on the ground on Juneteenth and are saying, no matter what you say, candidates who are running for president, no matter what you say, senator candidates that are running for these seats in swing states, the platform that we're demanding is that the police must be reined in, that we must defund the police. We've got to stop spending more on policing than we do on health care and youth services and homelessness services and mental health services combined. And we want that now. We don't want to wait another 10 years, another 20 years. We don't want to have the same fights as our parents and grandparents. So the Black National Convention is going to have cultural performances. We're going to hear from people on the ground. We're going to hear from our allied communities, um, other folks from around the country. But I don't want to give away too much. People <laughs> need to tune in. Tune in on Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern to the Black National Convention, and you will see what has been happening all over the country. Yeah, I, I'm sure after you've gotten your fill from the RNC, this might be a nice solve afterwards. There's something else that this Black National Convention is going to address. It's the BREATHE Act. And what I love about this act is it's a giant refutation to the people that cannot understand the difference between activists and organizers. You guys have a political strategy, a vision around defund. It's not just about being on the streets, although that's important. But this piece of legislation is something that brings together cohesively everything you were talking about. I just want you to, to quickly introduce to our viewers what the BREATHE Act is about and how it tangibly meets the goals that you are talking about with defund the police and other agenda items that are important. Yeah, absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head. You said that I have been working on police reform for 20 years, and yes, I have. I was in the streets when Amadou Diallo was shot 41 times in the Bronx. You know, we were out for People's Justice 2000 that following year, and we had a whole bunch of legislation. We've always been pushing forth policies. And what we've learned over the past 20 years is that tinkering around the edges of transforming the police does not save us. Chokeholds were banned in New York City long before Eric Garner was strangled to death. We've had a special prosecutor now for half a decade in New York City, and still police officers are not indicted and convicted for killing um, black and brown folks, civilians. And so we know that we have a police department that has oversized budgets, 
outsized political power. And unless we dismantle that, we will be back at it every 28 hours. And the BREATHE Act names that. The BREATHE Act cuts off federal funding to local and state policing and, and incarceration and redirects those dollars into what we know are proven proven methods of community safety, infrastructure for our folks that need mental health services, homelessness, education, basic health care. You know, we've, we, we designed and we propose to create six new major grant areas under the umbrella of community safety. So check out the BREATHE Act. There is a website where you can actually read the bill. It's called breatheact.org. And you can sign up as a community co-sponsor for BREATHE. That's beautiful. I think this is the part of the conversation from defund the police that people sometimes miss, which is the investment in community and community-led safety approaches. So I know what I'm doing on August 28th. I'm going to be watching the Black National Convention. You can too. Please do also follow Monifa Bendele. How can they follow? How can folks follow you? Absolutely. Follow me on Twitter at Monifa Bandele. Same with Instagram at Monifa Bandele. Same with Facebook. But definitely go to the Movement for Black Lives website. That's m4bl.org, where you will see information about Black August. You'll see information about the Breathe Act. And you'll see tons of information about the Black National Convention. Thank you so much, Monifa.